during the last three or four weeks, we have been looking at what happened to Stephen. He was one of the seven chosen to minister to the neglected widows, and he was also a man full of God's spirit and word. And we saw how he was falsely accused, unjustly tried, and then executed. Stephen was martyred. A martyr, uh, as we commonly understand the word, is someone who sacrifices himself for a cause. And because of that, uh, it really doesn't have to be anything about religion. Uh, there are such things as political martyrs, for example. Uh, anyone who sacrifices himself for a cause, we call a martyr. Uh, actually, the word martyr actually comes from a Greek word called martus, and the word itself actually means a witness. And so when we think of a martyr as someone who dies for a cause, you know, that's all very so impersonal, isn't it? Isn't it? But in Scripture, the word from which we get the English word martyr, martus, is a witness, a witness who testifies on behalf of another person. And if you remember, this is what Jesus said in his warning to his disciples in Mark chapter 13. He told his disciples, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. It's the same word there. Jesus told his disciples, be careful, be warned. You will be dragged before authorities and leaders so that you may bear testimony of me, so that you may be my witness. And what Jesus said would happen came true. We saw it happening to the apostles earlier, and it certainly happened to Stephen. Stephen bore witness to Jesus, and in that way, he was a martyr to Jesus, and he was um, executed for it. But precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we see in this passage how God's love and faithfulness ensure that Stephen's suffering has meaning and produces beautiful fruit from it. And so this morning, I'd like to look with you how this passage and Stephen's death equip us to live a gospel-informed, gospel-centered life in this fallen world. And the first thing is to focus on Christians' hope in suffering, Christians' hope in suffering. It was the wicked people, wicked men, who stoned Stephen to death. And in chapter 7, verse 58, we read, and the witnesses, again, witnesses. You know, this passage is all about bearing witness. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Uh, they, were, they were the false witnesses who brought false accusations against Stephen. And as they drove Stephen to his execution, they asked young man Saul to watch over their outer garments, lest their garments get stained with the blood of an innocent man. 
And here, Saul is being introduced for the first time uh, to show us the part that he played in Stephen's death. We read in chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul approved of his execution. Saul uh, was united in heart and purpose with the false witnesses. He who prided himself, the rising scholar of Scripture, he who considered himself better than others, at the end of the day was nothing more than someone who partnered with liars. That's who Saul was. And it's important for us to know that because when we actually come to Saul's conversion, we see just what sort of man God saves. But along with Saul's approval, we read here, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember Acts chapter 5, there were, when Peter and the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, the respected Pharisee Gamaliel urged prudence and patience concerning the Christians. And so the Jewish leaders for a time, uh, reluctantly, but they did go along with Gamaliel's advice, and for a time they tolerated the Christians. But at this point, all the restraints are removed, and their deadly rage exploded against the Christians, and Saul was right there with them, not merely as a bystander, but participating fully and even going above and beyond the rage and the hatred of the Jewish people. No, this was a traumatic turn of events because you remember how uh, throughout the early chapters of Acts, we have been reading about thousands of people being added to the church, thousands here, thousands there. And so by this time, the Christians in Jerusalem had come to number in many thousands. But virtually overnight, there were no Christians left in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It was a virtual collapse overnight of the church, almost a complete destruction where the, the body of Christ, the people who uh, identified as Christians in Jerusalem went from many thousands to a handful. Do you see how this was a traumatic and tragic turn of events? But actually, it may not have been a traumatic and a tragic turn of events because we need to remember Acts chapter 1 Verse 8, what the Lord Jesus said. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now read chapter 8 again. The persecution drove the Christians out of Jerusalem throughout the regions of Judea and then Samaria. So what's happening? These persecutions drove the Christians out of Jerusalem, moving them from Jerusalem to the greater region of Judea and then to Samaria, all to fulfill God's promise and command. 
You see, the evil rage of sinful men never accomplished anything other than God's holy purpose of redemption. The evil rage of wicked men actually became the instrument of God's redemptive work. And that is why we see here that Stephen's suffering and death were not pointless and they were not meaningless because we see here that God was not daunted by evil, but rather God made sure that the suffering and the death and the faithfulness of his beloved servant had meaning, that it bore fruit. I think making sense out of evil and tragedy is one of the hardest things in life. We suffer many things. We suffer and we are left broken. And so often we, we don't understand. And sometimes we find ourselves not even with the strength to dare hope or imagine that there is meaning to our suffering, much less that something good can possibly come out of the terrible things that we have experienced. I think trying to make sense out of evil and tragedy and trying to live with evil and tragedy that we have suffered, it's some of the hardest things that we will do in life. And we might even be thinking to ourselves, you know, maybe, maybe God was able to bring meaning and beauty out of Stephen's suffering because Stephen's suffering was clearly gospel-serving suffering. Clearly, he was bearing testimony of Jesus, and what he did was clearly for the kingdom of God. So I can buy into that. Yes, Stephen suffered for the name of Jesus Christ, no doubt about it, and that is why God was able to bring meaning, purpose, fruit out of his suffering. But what about my suffering? Because I live a small and an ordinary life, and the things that I suffer seem in no way related to the name of Christ or to his kingdom. And so we, we have these misgivings. We have fear and doubt. These things that we cannot make sense out of. But you know, that's actually precisely God's promise to us. Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, it's interesting. The person who wrote these words is Saul. That very Saul of this chapter who once despised the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in time, by the grace of God, Paul began to understand the beauty of the gospel promises. And when Paul is writing Romans chapter 8, you know, there, he's not just talking about the sufferings that we endure for the name of Christ, as when we go on some missionary troops, uh, trips and some, uh, some 
heathens who have never heard the name of Christ kill us. That's not what Paul is talking about. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about all sorts of what we might call ordinary suffering, struggle against sin, famine, hunger, whatever it may be. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You know why and you know how Paul is able to say that? He's able to say that because Stephen's God is our God. The God who brought beauty, meaning, and fruit out of Stephen's tragedy is the same God who promises you and me one day for those who love God all things will work together for good. And that is our hope in suffering. Whether you are some great missionary and martyr like Stephen or just ordinary person like me, in our ordinary lives, God's promise to you is that all things will work together because you love him and because he loves you. That's the Christian's hope in suffering. Secondly, uh, we can take a moment and think about Christians' servants' service against opposition. How do we serve Christ while facing opposition? And it seems that there does not seem to be one set way that is true for every believer. And we read here that the believers were all scattered except the apostles. Uh, the apostles, uh, we know, were called to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. And of course, we learn this from uh, Paul later. Peter and the apostles, Paul recognized, were called to the Jewish people. And Paul himself, he was sent to the Gentiles. And so the apostles were called to proclaim the gospel to the Jews, and as such, they did not have the Lord's permission to leave their post. They could not leave Jerusalem and still fulfill the Lord's calling to them to bear witness of Christ to the Jewish people. And so they stayed in Jerusalem to face the persecution. And of course, this decision will prove to be monumental because just in a few chapters, in Acts chapter 12, we will read that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So these apostles, knowing what God's calling was, knowing what they were called to do, they stayed in Jerusalem knowing they faced danger and risk. But they stayed even though it meant suffering and death. Now, it may be that God still calls some people to do this today in ways that are beyond our comprehension. God equips some people to stay in places uh, of danger and risk and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay. That's one way 
of serving the Lord. Or God may have a different purpose for you. Notice how virtually all believers fled from persecution. And there is in this passage no hint of rebuke or shame. Because God's calling for them was to be Jesus' witnesses in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we read, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Their leaving Jerusalem behind did not mean they left Jesus behind. They instead followed God's call to bear witness to Christ in a different place. And as they went, they did not keep silent. They preached the word with zeal. And by the way, I think we need to recognize that these thousands of people who were scattered and went about preaching wherever they went, you know, not all of them are gathering crowds of hundreds and thousands and leading people to Jesus by the thousands. You know, these are ordinary believers. As they were scattered, they're talking to people they meet on the road. They're talking to people who frequent their businesses. They're talking to strangers that they meet. They're talking to their families. And that's how they bore witness to Christ, how they preached the word. And they did not keep silent. They preached the word with zeal. And this is really helpful for us to to keep in mind because we do not all serve Christ in the same way because we do not all have the same calling and gift from the Lord. God makes the plans and we follow. And we simply need to know that the body of Christ is stronger and more effective because God has wisely distributed his gift and calling. And that challenges us in two ways. Uh, You know, the human heart, I think, is so craving for glory, it almost never misses an opportunity to glorify itself. I think sometimes we glorify ourselves by looking down on other believers and what they are doing with their lives. And we, we have this attitude within, you know, they're really not serious about their faith. Because if they were, they would be doing what I am doing. (laughs) No, but when we see what is happening here, it, it helps us, first of all, to appreciate other believers' service to the Lord when it looks different than our own. We all serve the Lord Jesus in a different way because we all have different calling and different gifts that we have received from the Lord. And so as the body of Christ, we recognize that that the Lord, He is God, He is the Lord. He places His people, He distributes, and He calls according to His wisdom. And there is richness, there is beauty there. And so we, we learn to appreciate other people, other believers, and how they serve the Lord, especially when it looks different than how we serve the Lord. Secondly, it also challenges us to think It asks us, are we really serving Christ where he has placed us? 
Why do you make the decisions that you make? Is it to avoid persecution, to flee inconveniences? Is it to avoid paying the price for the Lord Jesus, to go where you think is easier? Or do you make decisions and do you move so that you may bear witness to Christ? Um, And I think this is where we really are encouraged to be honest before the Lord in prayer. Because every Christian is a disciple, and every disciple is called to be a martyr. Again, I do not mean by the word martyr that every Christian is called to die, but every Christian is called to be a martyr as a witness. Again, not every one of us, uh, not even me, we get to preach to hundreds and thousands of people to lead hundreds and thousands of people to the Lord. But there are ways in our everyday life that we can bear witness for Jesus. Are you doing that? Or are you just moving from one place to the next, thinking only about what is good for you, maybe for your career, maybe for your family, without much thought to serving the Lord Jesus? That's how we ought to think about the Christian service against opposition. Thirdly and finally, uh, we consider Christians' response to evil. Christians' response to evil. Because what Stephen suffered was evil. Now we know, don't we? Of course we know. We believe that in the end, God's grace will triumph over evil, that in the end, God's purpose, His righteousness, will be established. But until then, how do we live in this evil world? Until then, how do we live with the evil that is around us? Well, see how Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Devout men. These men certainly understood God's sovereignty. They knew that God is wise and powerful, and they knew that one day God will bring something precious out of Stephen's death. And yet, they wept, they mourned, and they were broken. And we almost want to say, what happened to them? Where's their faith? Where's their theology? Have they forgotten that God is sovereign? That nothing but God's purpose is ever done? Have they forgotten that God is always working everything out toward good? Why are they weeping? Why are they mourning? Well, you know, they were following Jesus. In John chapter 11, Jesus, he knew that his friend Lazarus had died and knew exactly why he had died. And yet when Jesus comes to Lazarus' home and he sees Lazarus' sister Mary weeping, we read that Jesus was 
deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus wept. No one understood better than Jesus God's glorious plan to bring beauty out of evil. No one had more trust in God's sovereignty in Jesus. And Jesus knew that in mere moments, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet knowing all of that, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And knowing all of that, Jesus wept. You see, Jesus, he was greatly moved by the evil of this world. And he wept over his friend's death. And to be like Jesus means grieving because this world is not what it's supposed to be and this world is not what it's created to be. And you know, it is not faith to be unmoved by evil and say that God is sovereign. Oh well, that's God's will. And it is actually not being theologically right to say You know, it'll be all right. God's going to turn everything into good. No. These devout men who raised a great lamentation over him, they were being like Jesus, who hurt over the ills, the sins, the pains of this world, knowing that he would raise Lazarus in mere minutes, he wept. That's how we as Christians respond to evil. And know that, see here, how the godly believers identify themselves with Stephen just at the moment when Saul and others were dragging Christians into prison. They identified themselves with Stephen. They lamented over him. They grieved over him, knowing that made them a target. They mourned, and they took side. That's how we respond to evil. We grieve in this profoundly twisted world filled with suffering, and we take side with Jesus and his church. There's no Switzerland when it comes to our devotion to Christ. There's no neutral place. You have to take side. You have to take side even if it means it marks you even if it lumps you together with the rejected and scorned people. Take side. Don't stand neutral. Don't keep your hands clean. Take side. 
So with our hearts aching, we long for the day when Jesus will be revealed. Because on that day, the Lord Jesus who rose from the dead will utterly drive away darkness. And on that day, he will wipe away every tear. And on that day, our questions will be answered and our hearts healed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us courage, conviction, and grace to joyfully take your side in this world. And we wait for your coming, Lord Jesus. This world always breaks our hearts. And so we long for your return. Please come quickly and set all things right. For in your precious name we pray. Amen.